Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! Right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking about the poetry of steak. We're talking Seth Brundle's huge cock. And we're talking taking coffee with our sugar. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking, you're a real fucking drag. You know that, Joe? Oh. Man, when he comes out with that super machismo <laughs> bullshit, you're just like, oh, this is giving me like Buffy and Angel after they sleep together and then he turns into Angelus and just becomes a huge dick. <laughs> so for people that don't know Buffy, <laughs> I, I, I was very much getting like addict vibes, like specifically like someone on uppers because I was like, mm. ooh, that looks very familiar. And I'm um, sorry, we're talking David Cronenberg's The Fly, everybody, but <laughs> to finish my little anecdote, no, like that's something that get Jeff Goldblum, like when he uh, when he was interviewed about this, he was like, yeah, it's like I, I'm like on like uppers and speed the entire time as soon as I get out. And I was like, oh. Yes. <laughs> my, mm-hmm. my hypothesis was correct. Well, you can definitely see it, particularly when he is in that coffee shop scene, just pouring spoonful after spoonful of sugar. I mean, look, we all know that Cronenberg movies are good, are big on body horror and like, cringe. You know, you, want, you just want to look away. There mm-hmm. are a, a number of really gross things in this movie and really upsetting things that make you want to yeah. turn away from the screen. Just a few. But for me, the biggest one was when he was yelling at that waiter. slamming on the table slamming on the table not once but twice and then the camera like we we just cut to the next scene because this film is expertly paced Um, so we don't even know how the waiter felt about that the waiter is unimportant it is only the scientific genius (laughs) and the woman that compels him i was so funny i was like i was like i felt so bad for that waiter you have no idea but (laughs) (laughs) to help us discuss the fly because joe this is your first time watching this movie Correct, yes. (laughs) We do have to bring in a guest. So, everyone, she is um, the de facto face of Bloody Disgusting, a.k.a. our host website, acting as their lead critic. But you may also remember her as our guest on our episode on the remake of The Blob. So I think she's going to be our go-to for amazing practical heavy effects remakes of the 80s, Joe. Um, Mm -hmm. Do we have the thing scheduled at any point? (laughs) We do not, but we could even extend that into the late 70s and do Invasion of the Body Snatchers as well. Which also has Goldblum in it. There we go. Ah, well, everyone, please welcome Megan Navarro. Hey! Cheeseburger! (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to the show, Megan. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you so much. I I am on board for all of these remakes. Yes, please. (laughs) It's because they're all so fucking good in this era. I don't know what was in the water, but man, if you were remaking a horror film in the 80s, it's like... You were doing it really, really well. Well, you're always remaking 50s sci-fi films, apparently. Like, if you were taking a film from the 50s that was like a sci-fi horror film and making it in the 80s, it was apparently going to be amazing is what was going to happen here. And they're very loose, too. Like, what you saw in the 50s is not at all what the 80s version is. 
Mostly. I watched the 50s version today because I'd never seen it before. And I was like, oh, like, it, I, I do I do prefer the remake, just but maybe just because I've seen it so many times. But um, the original was not at all what I expected it to be. And to the point where I was kind of like, I wonder, like, you know, people, I mean, as both of you know, with horror fans, sometimes people get up in arms about remakes and changing specific details of quote unquote <laughs> classic films. And it, I'm like, did we? Was there like a mob of horror fans outside theaters for The Fly, being like, "Not our fly"? Right. <laughs> Probably, honestly, yeah. If you look at early Fangoria, like in that era, their their mailbag section was like, "I can't believe you're covering this crappy movie, and it's like <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and things like that." So, yeah, oh the problem is there was no internet, so those yeah, voices were muted. We <laughs> but also, horror fans never change. God, we're a delightful no. bunch, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, never changing at all. But, uh, but yeah. So, Megan, what w- what made you pick this film to come on uh, for this year? I I didn't pick it, Joe. Oh, asked. Joe assigned it to you. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I I am jumped at the opportunity because I love this movie so so much. Like, literally, it's in the top three of the decade of horror. Period. It's wow. a masterpiece. But yeah, Joe Joe is the one who reached out on this one. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. I should have done my check like I usually do. <laughs> well, <laughs> Joe, okay, so I haven't asked you, because we've ta- we've been talking all day kind of about this film, but like I haven't asked you what you thought about this film, because I've been mm-hmm. kind of nervous. What did you think of your first time viewing of The Fly? Ah, uh, yeah, this has been probably one of the darkest shames that I have, and I knew it would come up eventually because I knew we would cover it for the podcast, but... I also chose to look at this as, oh, finally, I'm going to fucking cross this movie off of my list. And I'll admit, like, I can see how well-crafted it is. I can see all the Cronenbergian elements of it. Mm. I think I really like it, but it's also, like, I've just been sitting with it all day, and I'm really not sure how to feel about it. Like, it's clearly a great movie, and I think Mm. the performances are fantastic. These effects are holy shit out of this world. Mm. But I don't know, like, it, you know, it's Cronenberg, there's so much to unpack. And I just feel like, oh, I should have watched this a couple weeks ago. So I could just (laughs) ease into it. I mean, it it is a major studio film for him. And this also, I think, even to this day, maybe even his biggest commercial success, or at least at the time it for sure was. No, it is. It's still his biggest commercial success. So, I mean, I don't don't disagree with you. I was like, oh, I can't disagree with whatever your fucking feeling you have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can, you know, gently push back against it. But but, but actually, no, because is it, is it, does it feel less Cronenbergian to you than maybe some of your favorite Cronenbergian films? Uh, it's so hard to say, right? Because there's so much in this movie that is wackadoodle bat shit. Mm-hmm. And yet it, I think what throws me is the romance because this movie has a lot more emotionality than I'm used to seeing from Cronenberg. I'm used to seeing the sterile mm. kind of, you know, the, the man who is obsessed with his job, who is often a scientist and has no time or energy for women. And then it all goes to shit. And that is the story here. And yet, I don't know, maybe I'm tapping into the romantic chemistry of the real-life couple, but Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis are really dynamic in this. It also does feel somehow more studio-polished than what I'm used to. I'm used to seeing a slightly grungier aesthetic from Cronenberg, even in later films which are still studio-based. What about, like, The Dead Zone? Because to me, that's kind of like his baby transition step into... Mm -hmm. um, Which also has a lot of romance. It does. And ironically enough, that's the other Cronenberg I haven't seen. 
<laughs> oh, okay, okay. Uh, I'm also that's also a blind spot for me. I, I've seen like everything like pre the fly and most things post the fly outside of like his like really recent stuff, like his like last three films I haven't seen. Oh, the blah dramas? No thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm still curious about Maps of the Stars. I've heard it's terrible, but I'm so fucking curious about it. Just skip it. Go straight to Cosmopolis. Okay. <laughs> but no, I mean. I, I, out of curiosity, though, I mean, is it maybe even the way the film ends? Because I, I, I will confess, I've seen this movie several times, mostly on TV when I was growing up. Like, I feel like I always came across this on TV. And yet I I forgot that it ends. Like, it just ends. Mm-hmm. She kills him. She is sobbing and cut to credits. Like, yeah. It, there's nothing you could add to that, though. No. Like, no. He, he he tried, but no. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that you can read all the anecdotes where he's like, yeah, we tried it a bunch of different ways and just nothing works. So we were like, just end it. It's perfect. <laughs> it is. I, I mean, I think it is. It's very like opera-like. That yes. Well, and, and but I get what you're saying, though. You know, it's missing that kind of sterile, I don't even want to say emotionless, but like this just kind of like hollow, vacant vibe that you normally get from Cronenberg. But I, it works for me if only because Cronenberg entered this knowing it was a love story. So it wasn't something that he like... I don't know, developed mid-filming. It was like, because he, well, when we get to the production, like he he rewrote a lot of this script mm-hmm. because it was originally about a married couple, but he changed it to be, it was like a new, fresh romance. So, you know, but um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's a perplexing entry in his oeuvre. And I think, Megan, you really nailed it. Like there is a slight shift as Cronenberg goes a little bit more mainstream. And, you know, he's always... Not always. He regularly worked with U.S. actors, and he was working with increasingly large budgets as he became more and more established. But uh, presumably with The Dead Zone and then more so with this, these are really him trying to map his own creative impulses into a studio system. And I think that this is honestly one of the best examples I've ever seen where he's not compromising on the things that make his movies, but it does still have that slightly different polish. Like the fact that this was a huge hit doesn't surprise me, even though it's still like a gross Cronenberg movie where a man spits on a donut with like <laughs> bile. That's, so th- that, like, that's my thing. Even watching this, I'm just like, I, I have a hard time believing this was a huge hit. Like it, just because it is, so gross. And granted, most of the gross stuff is relegated to the third act, mostly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mostly? But, but, but I, I, I'm still very much like, I, I mean, people going to see this in theaters. <laughs> I just can't yeah. believe it. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful, though? I think it's oh, wonderful. Oh, gosh. Yes. Oh, 100. I'm glad. I mean, and you know, there's reports of people vomiting in the test screenings for this film. Uh, I mean, in the deleted, you know, monkey cat slash leg chest leg thing apparently a woman like ran to the theater and was like puking in the bathroom and that's one of the reasons why they decided to cut it (laughs) whereas i heard that it's because they didn't have enough time to properly execute the effects so it didn't look good um so that is actually on the blu-ray for this and i think it looks fine interesting but um but it was like monkey cat well we'll talk about it in a minute but (laughs) (laughs) monkey cat segue yeah, exactly. It just didn't work. Well, okay, okay. L- l- let's let's go into the production of this film a bit because this. I mean, unlike the Blob, which was like, oh, like let's make the movie. <laughs> <laughs> th- th- this had a bit more of a road to get to get put on screen. 
So with this story, you know, we're going to obviously hear Cronenberg. Um, you're going to have a couple more names that I want you to kind of keep in your mind. So one is uh, Charles Edward Pogue. So I'm going to say Pogue for this. He's he is the original screenwriter for this remake. Um, and Stuart Cornfield. Cornfield is our big producer. Um, and of course, <laughs> Mel Brooks, another producer on this film. Mm-hmm. So, in the early 80s, uh, co-producer Kip Oman approached screenwriter Charles Edward Pogue with the idea of remaking the, the 1958 Vincent Price film, The Fly. And, Megan, you have seen the original Fly? Yes, it's been a, I haven't revisited it in a while, but yeah, I have. Are you a fan of it? Uh, it's fine. I mean, I think the ending is what kind of, it's like that final little hook that, that yeah. makes it enjoyable. I, I told Joe today, I was like, I, what I wasn't expecting from that movie was that it was essentially presented as a murder mystery. Yeah. It's not at all like this mm-hmm. <laughs> whatsoever. No. And, and the only thing people do remember is that final shot, the help me, help me. That's that's the takeaway that people have, which is not the movie. It's mm. not. But I, I will say that while I, I was into the movie from beginning to end, but I, I did genuinely find that help me, help me, like, very disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so Pogue began by reading the original short story that The Fly was based on, and then of course watching the film, because he'd never seen it. (laughs) Deciding he wanted to do it, he talked with producer Stuart Cornfield about setting up the production, and Cornfield agreed. They pitched the idea to Fox, and they were like, fuck yeah, let's make The Fly. (laughs) Really? Were they? Were they like that? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly how they were. (laughs) (laughs) All that 80s cocaine, that's exactly how it went down. (laughs) Honestly, I would believe it. Yeah. So, um, Pogue was given money to write a first draft of the screenplay, and he did write one that was pretty similar to the original short story, but they wanted to, the only big change they had was making it a gradual metamorphosis, as opposed to the original film, which is like, oh, the doctor uh, switches his head and one of his arms with the fly. But when the executives read the script, they did not like it. They said, fuck no, and immediately withdrew from the project. (laughs) See what I did there? Um, (laughs) After some negotiation, though, Cornfield orchestrated a deal whereby Fox would agree to distribute it if they could set up financing through another source. So they were like, we'll we'll pay to put it in theaters, but we're not paying to make this shit. We want the profits, but we don't want to put the money up front. Basically. So in to save the day is Mel Brooks. And I mean, I know by this point, that's always like, if you see like, you know, one of those listicles, it's like... 20 things you didn't know about the fly that are going to totally shock you. Like, this is always the one that's on that list, but Mm -hmm. it still is surprising to me no matter how many times I hear it. (laughs) (laughs) So he was going to produce the the film, which, uh, with his company, Brooks Films. And Cornfield was a frequent collaborator with Brooks, who, and they both worked together on David Lynch's film, The Elephant Man. But Cornfield gave the script to Brooks, who liked it, but he was like, eh, but I feel like it needs a rewrite. So... Pogue was removed from the project, and this is kind of the last we really see of him. And they bring in someone else for a rewrite, but it still wasn't right. And then they brought Pogue back to write it, to rewrite it and polish it up, and it still wasn't really working. Um, During this entire time, Brooks and Cornfield are trying to find a director. And their first choice was David Cronenberg, but he was not available because he was working on the adaptation of Total Recall. Oh my god, when you see the list of films that David Cronenberg was purportedly preparing to do, like Total Recall, he was actually attached to, and it Mm -hmm. just didn't work out. But the other films that he was in the running for, like, he was in the running for Top Gun. What the (laughs) fuck would a David Cronenberg Top Gun movie look like? It's bananas. It's all about the actual plane and not, you know. It's just like Tom Cruise fucking the plane. No, yeah, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a. (laughs) early version of crash for him yes <laughs> <laughs> Iceman takes on a whole new meaning 
Yes. So, um, because Cronenberg was not available, they go to the British director Robert Bierman after seeing one of his short films. And Bierman hasn't really done a lot. I think the the most well-known film he's done is um, Vampire's Kiss with Nicolas Cage. Okay. Um, but, but that's really it. So Bierman was like, about to do this. He flew to Los Angeles, met with them, was like, was going to go do it. But then he got a call one day that his daughter was killed in an accident in South Africa. And they were like, oops, we got to put the movie on hold. So he told them he was unable to start working. Um, Mel Brooks was like, hey, it's fine. We'll give you three months and we'll contact you again. After three months, Bierman was like, I, I can't commit to it. Like, I, I won't give, be able to give my full commitment to this project, blah, blah, blah. And even though he was under contract, and technically Brooks could have forced him to make the film anyway, um, yes. Brooks was a nice person and let it, let him out of his contract. Mel Brooks is a nice person. Yeah, he's a genuinely nice person. Um, by this point, Cronenberg uh, was no longer associated with Total Recall, so they said, hey, um, you want to do The Fly? And he said, yes, as long as I can rewrite the script, which is exactly what he did. Hmm. But in this way, though, because uh, you'll see that Cronenberg and Pogue still have a co-screenwriting credit. Technically, Cronenberg should have been the only credited screenwriter per the WGA like like rules or whatever the fuck. But Cronenberg said, "I this film wouldn't exist without Pogue, so I want his credit on there. Because Cronenberg is also a nice guy. <laughs> he is. He is. Yes. There weren't, like, I mean, there were, he changed quite a bit. Like, in Pogue's original draft, we are focusing on protagonist a married protagonist just like in the original film but we've got jeff powell and married to someone named barbara but it really was the the focus of the film was more so on the two financiers who were pressuring him to get results on his mystery project because they don't know about the the telepods Mm. one of them discovers the telepods he shows it to the other by testing it on a cat which at that point was the infamous monkey cat scene it ends with jeff vomiting and feeding on one of the financiers before he starts a fire and puts himself in a pod to burn to death and the last scene is Barbara, like, having the maggot, like, nightmare, birthing nightmare. Hmm. Okay. It, yeah, it was, it was a bit more in line with the original film, but just, like, gored up, basically. Cronenberg, of course, like, did a bit, did things a bit differently. He got, he retained the central plot, he retained the gradual mutation, but he totally reworked the characters. He got rid of the financiers, but he combined them into the character of Stavis Borens, who, of course, as we know, is not a financier, as a, but he's actually um, Veronica Quaife's boss in this film. Um, but he 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 was like, it needs to be the, the the focus of this movie needs to be on the romance. It needs to be on that, and not this like bullshit Bartok labs people. It's stupid. Which is funny because like in Cronenberg's films, he almost always has a nefarious corporation. But if you pay attention to how they get utilized, they're always just like a shadowy thing that lurks on the corner, and they don't actually end up really impacting things. It's like people are their own elements of destruction in Cronenberg films. Mm. So with the script everyone approved of, Cronenberg assembled his usual crew because he really does work with the same people uh, every every on every movie mm-hmm. and began the process of casting. Uh, they did offer the role of Seth Brundle to John Lithgow, apparently, but he turned it down, stating that it was too grotesque. <laughs> they went for Jeff Goldblum, which was kind of funny because the makeup people were like, hey, don't get someone with a huge nose or like really big ears because it's going to be harder to put the makeup on. And <laughs> then they brought in Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Little did they know how memeable Jeff Goldblum is. If they could see into the future, they would have been like, oh, yeah, the way that he ends up getting memeified in Jurassic Park, that'll be perfect for our film. <laughs> so, yeah, they they, uh, they begin filming on December 1st, 1985. Um, oh, and Gina Davis was brought in. Um, originally, they didn't. 
not that they didn't want her, but Goldblum and Davis were dating at the time. And he asked them to have her come in and read. And apparently she like was the first person they screen tested and she blew them out of the water with her audition. And they were like, oh, fuck it. Like, doesn't matter if you're dating Goldblum and our star, like we'll put you in the movie. <laughs> but she wasn't well known at this point, right? Because I saw a lot of people saying, you know, oh, this film, the reason it works is because it's got Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, Hollywood stars. But then... When I looked into it, it didn't really look like Gina Davis was a huge star yet. No. Yeah, her first film was Tootsie from 82, and then she did Fletch, <laughs> and then this. <laughs> did they, right. like, met doing Transylvania, was it T-65? Yeah, like, si- yeah, something like that. And it's like this horror, com- it's, it's really just a comedy, and she's got a tiny bit part, but that's how they met, and, like, got together so she really hadn't this was probably her breakthrough role here well and after this she would do beetlejuice and then she would actually 88 was her big year because it was beetlejuice 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 (laughs) earth girls are easy and the accidental tourist but of course she would win an academy award for the accidental tourist in 88 Good year for Gina Davis. <laughs> Very good year. And I will say that I really, really like watching her interview. And she even talks about, because, you know, it's like, this is a gross movie. And she's like, you know, <laughs> when reading the script, I, you know, gore doesn't bother me. I love scary movies. I love being scared. I think it's like one of the best things you can ever do. Like, I, whatever. But I didn't think about how gooey it was going to be. And it was just really sticky. Like, everything was so sticky. And I was like, oh, my God, that is exactly how I feel. Because I've always wanted to be, like, killed in a horror movie. But I don't want to feel the sticky fake blood. Like, that sounds horrible. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Which is what the murder scenes on sets are all about, right? Yeah, yeah. Although, wouldn't y'all want to be in a makeup chair for five hours one day just to see what it's like? Oh. (laughs) I I say yes, but then it's the idea of getting the stuff that cover. Like, if you have to get the full face covering and then they stick straws up your nose, that's where I start to panic. Yeah. <laughs> that's claustrophobic. Yeah, that's like you're being buried alive, but not, right? Yeah, but for art, yay. <laughs> yes. So filming ends in early 86. Um, a rough cut of the fly was shown to the executives at Fox, and they were very impressed. The first audience screening was at Toronto's Uptown Theater. Um, does that still exist, Joe? I don't think so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was hoping you'd be like, oh my god, I love that theater. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you exactly where this film was made because the location of Jeff Goldblum's like office slash lab slash house is basically 20 minutes away from me. Still there. Well, there you go. See, you should go with your Blu-ray of the fly and take a picture. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, due to a strong audience reaction, the graphic and infamous monkey cat sequence and basically in the film, what this is, is like whenever he's trying to figure out how to... um, make himself more human he splices together a monkey and a cat and it um well it works but (laughs) it's like this monkey cat creature and then when it is when it freaks out on him he beats it to death with a lead pipe and apparently that turned the audience against him because he was obviously like torturing animals and then Mm -hmm. beating it and they because of the focus of the film they were like no we people have to want him to survive and succeed even though he's doing horrible things so it just Mm -hmm. couldn't be that horrible apparently Right. Animal abuse is a step too far. Yeah. 
pretty much. But yeah, so I mean, it all goes well, and The Fly uh, was critically acclaimed, with most praise going to Goldblum's performance and the special effects, despite being a gory remake of a classic made by a controversial non-mainstream director like Cronenberg. It was a commercial success. Uh, It opened on August 15th of 1986, was the top-grossing film in the U.S. for two weeks, opening with $7 million. Fun fact, it opened against Michael Mann's Manhunter, which flopped in the number eight slot that weekend. (laughs) Good weekend at the... I mean, not box office wise, but good weekend for genre enthusiasts. Yeah. So actually, listeners, if we have any listeners that saw The Fly and Manhunter opening weekend, please tell us. I would love to know what that was like. Just a double bill. (laughs) Uh, But it goes on to gross $40.5 million domestically. Um, Film critic Gene Siskel, which is shocking to me, named The Fly as his 10th best film of 1986. It, we've got a 92% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 8.4 out of 10 and a letterbox score of 7.8 out of 10. I mean, Time included it on their list of all-time 100 greatest movies back in 2005. They later named it one of the 25 best horror films ever made. And it would go on to, of course, get nominated for an Oscar for Best Makeups, and it actually did win, which is kind of a rarity. Although there were some people that were pissed that Goldblum didn't get nominated. And once again, Gene Siskel, up to defend the film, he subs- he stated that Goldblum mostly got stiffed out of a nomination because the older Academy of Voters generally do not honor horror films, which the irony coming from this man's mouth. he's like looking in a mirror talking to himself ah it's so weird that critics don't like horror movies why yeah (laughs) but uh yeah i mean and and here we are today you know uh 90 oh 20 35 years later talking about the fly (laughs) yes the 25th anniversary why could we have programmed this film 35th 35th (laughs) we like horror not math okay If you're going to see me counting on my fingers the decades. Oh, my God. (laughs) We're film critics, not mathematicians. What do you want, guys? What do you want? I don't know. Look, we're not making telepods anytime soon. That's what we're saying. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. no. But it's interesting that, you know, we always end this with talking about critical reception and how the film does and what its cultural legacy is and that kind of stuff. And it's fascinating to me how the discussion around aids impacts this film because i didn't really know that that was much of a thing uh until we started doing research for it and then i was like oh this is a huge part of the dialogue around this movie yeah so if people are wondering why we're covering this i mean this is actually um like it wasn't cronenberg's intent um and actually he told gina davis when they were filming you know he was like in the scene when his ear falls off and she reaches forward and like hugs him which apparently by the way audience really reacted to heavily in the 80s yeah i still react to that yeah because <laughs> it's covered in vomit it's gross. Yeah. <laughs> she just watched him like spit up on this donut and his ear falls off and then she hugs him and mm-hmm. i and, and that's with the goo all over his shirt to begin with and yeah then, yeah that is love. Soul. And when she <laughs> hugs him, her head is actually on his the side of his head yeah. and he lost his ear. So she picks yep. like the worst side to be on. <laughs> but but he told Cronenberg told her, like, don't think of this as a monster, like a monster movie. Imagine as if your loved one had cancer mm-hmm. and yeah. you were watching their body deteriorate, you know, with the lesions show up and all this stuff. How would you react to someone that looked like this if it was cancer? 
And so, you know, I think that was Cronenberg's intent. And, you know, I have a quote from him where he talks about, you know, how AIDS wasn't his intent, but he welcomes, like, that interpretation of it. Because I do think watching this, you know, I mean, like, this is 86. This is, like, peak AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. And that this character starts developing lesions on his face. I was like, okay, I mean, it may not have been intentional, but the writing's on the wall there. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky because if you know anything about Cronenberg's films up to this point, he's actually incorporated cancer into not all of them, but nearly all of them. So he actually has a very vested interest in the way that diseases obviously impact the human body and how it turns into like uh, pathology and that sort of thing. But specifically, he he does seem to often be very interested in cancer. But a lot of the time, people prefer to read it as like sexually transmitted diseases. And I guess one of the things that I was really interested in when I was doing research on this, I came across an article by Ernest Mathis. And he's a relatively well-known film critic who writes on a lot of cult films. And he wrote a piece called AIDS References in the Critical Reception of David Cronenberg for Cinema Journal in 2003. And it's basically a historical chronology of the way that uh, different critics reacted to Cronenberg's work. And this is the film that actually changes the dialogue around the way people talk about him. So before people were pretty kind of, I don't want to say that they weren't appreciative of him, but they often found the violence sexualized and that turned off a lot of people. And then with this film, I think in part because of the romance, but also because of the AIDS allegory and how it was dominating the cultural consciousness and like discussions they really started to gravitate to that. They realized that there was like a topical way to reference it. So it almost grounded the way that people started to see his work. And then they even retconned the way that they were talking about his old work. So like his first film, Shivers, which did not get the warmest of receptions from critics, suddenly gets like recanonized as, oh my God, Cronenberg saw the writing on the wall and he was he was aware of these kinds of implications or like the way that things were going, which he's also like, no, that was not my intention. <laughs> I almost wonder if it's basically because he went more broad in this approach for the fly. You, a lot of the, the science and, and stuff that he implemented in previous efforts was kind of specific and the world bu- building was a little bit more specific, mm-hmm. but in, in a not quite as accessible way as it is in the fly. I yes. mean, the reason why the fly works and why it was so easy for people to graft what was happening at the time is because it's such a broad, you know, like he's turning into a fly. Yes. But you compare that to aging or any number of diseases and that's mm-hmm. a metaphor that works. And, you know, you look at the brood, well, you know, he's talking about psychosomatic, you know, tumors <laughs> that manifest into yeah. babies and it's a little bit different and, and more science driven. So I, I, kind of feel like the approach big time i think the simplicity of the fly is what is what i mean because yeah obviously we have this love story also even the if you look at the cast list it's like oh five people like it's so tiny yeah well and i remember look because when i was preparing prepping when i was preparing to watch this uh, i was like okay this is probably like a good like two hour movie it's 90 minutes Mm -hmm. it hits the ground running it's out it it leaves when it, it knows when to get out like this is a movie with no fat on its bones and a very no. singular focus. And I do yep. think that that, 
you know, the inversion of the true love saves the day, but it's still a movie about true love. I mean, love, maybe not true love, whatever the fuck. But, <laughs> like, I feel like that was an easy enough concept for people to grasp onto outside of, like, you know, as opposed to, you know, even looking at shivers, possessing sex slugs that make you want to, like, fuck everything in sight. Violently, yes. Yeah, violently. Yes. <laughs> violently, very violently. But, yeah, there's... I mean, there is definitely, you look at some, I, you know, re-watching this uh, in preparation, I was thinking of Relic and how it's yeah. two different approaches to the same concept, which is coming to terms with your mortality and your loved ones coming to terms with your mortality. And it's just done in this very 80s excess, glorious practical effect driven way, but it's mm-hmm. still a very broad concept that is universal. Like we can all yeah. relate to this. Yeah, the universality was the piece that kind of struck me. And again, maybe that's why I'm kind of grappling with how it feels like it's Cronenberg, mm-hmm. but also kind of not because you're you're right, Megan, there's something about this where you could envision very mass market audiences going to this and very quickly and easily grasping the concept and investing in this couple and just going along for the ride because that's what the movie is. And it's by virtue of not having any fat on the bones. It's by virtue of having expert pacing and knowing when the fuck to get out that it's like, this is the story. It's simple. It's easy to understand. Get on board. And then we're out. Well, and I think it's fascinating too, because again, in the original screenplay for this, it was a married couple. So it was people who had chemistry pre-movie. I think Cronenberg's smartest move is to make this a new romance. You know, when we, when the movie starts, the first scene of the film is their first meeting. So, mm-hmm. We it's we are literally present for the entirety of their relationship, and Goldblum obviously right and rightfully so gets so much praise for his performance. But I think Gina Davis is phenomenal in this film because, I, and I mean full disclosure, I have never I've never had to watch a family member like wither away uh, from a disease, but watching her live this experience, I feel like I at least have like an inkling of what it must feel like because I weep. For her in this movie. Yeah, it's a really careful balancing act. And I think they make it very easy to get on board with their relationship. I also agree with you, Trace, that I think it's really smart that Cronenberg made this a new relationship because it mirrors the evolution that Seth himself will go through as he turns into the fly, right? Like he starts the movie and he's kind of childlike and full of wonder. And then he goes through these various stages where he becomes more like a teenager. He's not bathing. He's not taking care of himself. He's eating badly. He's breaking out. And then he matures and starts to accept his fate as he grows closer to death. And it's like also how their relationship progresses and deepens and matures even if we're let's go back to you know it's like an aids allegory and whatever uh the 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 scene whenever she's telling status about all this you know and he's like well he could be contagious but then he's like oh but go Mm -hmm. back there and like film him it's okay we're clearly not that worried about it but even (laughs) even with like you know the times we live in today these pandemic times it's like oh yeah because i've never i never watched this film before thinking about the fly like thing as a disease as a virus um it was only on this watch that i did that but watching it like that it's very much like oh yeah like it is kind of terrifying um and i appreciate the small scale even more but it also like felt more real because of the what the past year and a half we've all had Mm -hmm. but yeah do we want to maybe start the plot sure uh so we kick off with a very bombastic score holy shit (laughs) Howard Shore, take it down a notch. I wrote in my notes, when this score starts, it starts. (laughs) It's like, movie, begin. (laughs) 
<laughs> and yes, we are at a party. So this is a party for scientists. So it is not the most happening of affairs. But uh, yeah, we meet scientist Seth Brundle, played by Jeff Goldblum. And he is chatting up particle journalist Veronica, aka Ronnie, because of course, we have to have a lady with a masculine name so that we can play with the gender divide and so on. Um, <laughs> and she's played by Gina Davis. And he's doing a not great job of hitting on her by saying, hey, I'm working on this invention that's going to change the world. When she doesn't bite, he manages to get her into his car so he can take her back to the so, lab. Okay, but for both of you, because I wrote my notes and I was like, is this weird? Like, this seems a little weird, but maybe it was like the 80s. It was like, oh, yeah, like, go home with this person, this scientist that you just met at this convention. But she wasn't going home with him. And there's a scene <laughs> that we will get to later that... I do have very big questions about. Um, <laughs> but she's clearly an intrepid journalist right. that is eager to get out from her yes. ex-slash-editor. So, you know, she she doesn't see him as a threat, clearly. Like, he is a nerdy type who yes. has got no game. He's not a threat <laughs> to her. And he's promising the possibility of a big story. So, like, it makes sense. She's not, she's, everything is on her face. Like, mm -hmm. she, unspoken, you see, she's like, all right, loser, what do you got? Yeah. And also, she doesn't think that he's taking her home. She thinks that she's going to his lab. It just happens to be to that he lives in a loft, exactly. which is a lab Which home. is a little bit seedy looking when you pull up to that alley. But, yeah. If I walk into a, a person's residence and the door is a giant sliding metal door i'm immediately kind of like um oh my god no what is wrong with the two of you this was loft porn for days i was living i was just gonna say well i'm talking about the alleyway when you pull up the, the property <laughs> of that building looks like a back alley where you could get shanked Absolutely. but the, the loft the loft itself is very Gorgeous. of the era i feel like there's a lot of 90s thrillers that have that same kind of loft situation mm -hmm. that people mm -hmm. loved yeah i guess i you may not want to rent it. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't meet my standards for living. Teresa's like, Teresa's mm. like, mm, the there's not man? enough uh, steel appliances. Like, <laughs> why is there a pull-out couch bed? Oh, oh God, yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I did kind of scoff at the pull-out couch. <laughs> I mean, when you realize that's his actual bed, that's not, oh, I've been working late in the lab right. and I have to crash after a long night. It's like, no, dude, that's your real bed. Oh, you are a 15-year-old boy in a man's body. And, and I say this Which, as someone who has a pull-out couch. Like, I'm not like, oh, like, boo, I'm a pull-out couch. Sleep, sleep on it every night. day. Yeah. <laughs> But I will say, like, if you listen to the commentary, David Cronenberg has a sense of humor. And he's like, ah, this is the part where I had, like, the nerd gets laid. That's mm -hmm. <laughs> his For sense the of first humor matches time. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah, so he does bring her back to this lab home, and uh, he is there to show her off the designer phone booths slash telepods. So that's what Ronnie calls them designer phone booths. He calls them telepods, and we call them eggs because these motherfuckers are a combination <laughs> of uterine shape and vulviform glass doors, which is like David Cronenberg through and through. Yeah, well... This will probably only add to that uh, theory there, but they he modeled them after Ducati engines. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. 
So he likes his tech. I mean, Brundle is named after a race car driver. Which I love. It, was, it wasn't It was just any Ducati. It was Cronenberg's Ducati. <laughs> oh, I thought it was the production designer's Ducati. Oh, maybe it was. Okay. Wow. I guess he knows his cars regardless. Yeah. <laughs> he likes tech a lot. He <laughs> likes race cars. He likes big engines. Um, And then he has the little nerd who gets car sick. And that's why these things are being invented in the first place. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will tell y'all, so um, before I ever saw The Fly, when I was a kid, I think it was like uh, eight years old, but my family did like a, you know, the Disney World trip to Florida and we went to Universal Studios. And at Universal Studios, they have a, um, like a makeup effects show. And the big grand finale of the show, it's not like a big theater auditorium. It's like a, it's like a small, like a big classroom almost. Mm -hmm. So like, it's an intimate space. But the big grand finale was, yeah, they bring out these, the fly pods. Oh. oh. And they, they, they're like, and can an audience member come and test this out for us? And oh of my course, God, no. Eight-year-old me is like, I want to do it! <laughs> <laughs> and all the adults who have seen the movie are like, fuck no. Well, and, and I did not get to do it because I'm sure they were like, we don't want a kid. But yeah, the, the, this woman, uh, this the, they got a guy in there and uh, he goes in and I, whatever magic trick they did, but then someone else comes out, of course, with, uh, it was the 50s fly stuff, though. So it was like, wow. he had like the head of a fly and the arm of a fly. So I was like, well... Looking back on it, I'm like, that's kind of weird that they did the 50s makeup with the 80s tech, but sure. <laughs> like, I guess they can't, they can't put fi- the, 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 the volunteer five hours in a chair to, to put no, the Jack Goldblum makeup on. No, no, the show starts every 45 minutes, Trace. <laughs> I feel like I've seen something similar, except instead it's the baboon that comes out. Oh, maybe. They maybe changed it. <laughs> I don't think, they have that magic, like that monster makeup show and now it's completely different like some werewolf comes out from behind the curtains but they do have the the telepod in a close by gift shop that is so Mm. cool yeah yeah yeah. so important to note uh in this like weirdly sexualized environment this is when he asks her to give him something of personal importance so she gives him her stocking to put through and you're like oh my god the sexual energy is i thought she was gonna give him her heel because like she takes off her shoe i was like cool there you go nope oh we're doing we're doing the stocking (laughs) i mean the heel also would have been a sexual object to some (laughs) so yes he teleports the stocking and it's it's interesting right because uh this is the first symptom that he needs her in order to make the work work which is suggestive of like the male and female roles that people play he's like a man who can't reproduce until he actually meets a woman who can show him how to make the device work so uh this is all fine and well until she says cool i'm gonna write a story and he's like not excited about that but uh her boss at the magazine stathis borens who is played by john getz particle magazine Particle <laughs> magazine. Oh boy. You can see why she wants this piece so badly. She's like, I could win a Nobel Prize, but also I could get the fuck away from Particle magazine. <laughs> so Stathis thinks that she's being conned, but uh, when she goes out to a lunch date, a fast food lunch date wait, with wait, Seth. Wait, wait. Um, thoughts on Stathis, good guy or bad guy? He's got an arc, too. I love his arc. He seems like such a mother trucking dick. (laughs) Until, until it, you know, he he shows up where it counts. Yeah. I will say for the longest time, I thought this man was uh, Hart Bachner from Die Hard and Urban Legends Final Cut. And I was really, really shocked to find out it was not him. It was, it was, yeah, it was John Getz (laughs) from Xenon the Sequel. 
Oh, right. That. <laughs> famed, <laughs> famed movie. <laughs> Xenon the sequel. Oh, that one. Okay. <laughs> and let me tell you, Megan, the thing that I love the most about doing this podcast with Trace is that he will drop that and then I will get tagged in some bullshit tweet five months from now where somebody's like, oh my God, Trace Xenon the sequel. Thank you so much. I feel so seen. And you're just like, what the fuck is this? Am I we being- both play to our strengths. Uh, sure, but nobody tell me I'm Lizzie smart. McGuire, he would work it in. <laughs> um, I, for the record, do not like this character, and I—it's maybe the one part of the film that doesn't entirely work for me. I appreciate, yes, he does get an arc, but I don't feel that it's earned. I don't like the fact that he becomes a good guy at the end of this. I think that the problem is that one, it's not he's not the focus. And mm-hmm. and because he's not the focus, you don't really get any of their backstory no. except the aftermath. And the aftermath is he's he, horrible. he clearly <laughs> got dumped and he's not happy about it and he's desperate to keep her, but he cannot keep his jealousy and ego in check either Mm -hmm. and so yeah it took me many probably many watches before i I came around um but i think that what especially in later as i got older what really kind of turned me around on him is you know how progressive she is and how Mm -hmm. progressive this movie is in in the whole abortion uh subject and that he supports her in that is very True. progressive. Okay. Um, he supports her and he's bending over backwards to make sure she gets what she needs. Mm-hmm. No questions asked, you know? Yeah. I don't disagree with either one of you because, Joe, I, I, I totally get where you're coming from. I think even yeah. for me, it's it's not even so much though that he supports her decision to get an abortion or want an abortion. But in that entire sequence, it never feels like he's saying, yeah, I support you in an opportunistic way to get back with her. No, right. no, he's, it's genuine. You know, yeah. like even when she is rightfully freaking out in that alleyway mm-hmm. after she sees him again, uh, he's like, whoa, whoa, we should take a minute to like calm down. I don't know that this is the mindset you want to be on. That's not mm-hmm. a predatorial, like he's not ever preying on her. He's a dick when she's able to hold her own. But he's also completely supportive when she's not. I will say, though, that one of the original endings for this film that was filmed um, does end with Gina Davis's character and Stathis in bed together. And she has an, a dream about her baby. Um, because yeah. she's pregnant still. And, but yeah, but they were like, we don't... If we end it that way with, oh, she's back with Stathis, then it's mm-hmm. basically just this entire movie we've just seen is like, oh, she's just on a pit stop it. to like happiness with Stathis. Yeah, and that's not no, that how they not... wanted it. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that, that would not come he 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 loses he loses a hand and a foot so i mean you know this is fair shitty behavior but he definitely pays the piper (laughs) shitty men beware this is what could happen to you yeah he still saved her (laughs) yeah and just to piggyback on uh the fact that you raised it megan i love the fact that we're saying the word abortion in this movie and it's one of the things that feels the most quintessentially Canadian about it Um, not just because it was a hot topic of conversation in the 80s like there's an entire Degrassi junior high episode dedicated to like actually saying the word abortion Mm. but it's something that you don't get in American films because you folks have a very different relationship with religion and uh... it's a touchy subject here Mm -hmm. Yes. Especially for both Megan and I who live in Texas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. go us. Go us. 
it's like, is it because like what? Well, I mean, not because. Is it like would we call it like? Would we use other words to to describe an abortion? Like, would we just say like terminated? I guess I don't know. Well, half the time you folks don't even we just don't get, do it. Like or, or, you, you shy away from it, or you have to be seen like feeling bad about it, feeling sad about it, feeling bad about it, or even presenting an alternative. Like, oh, shouldn't you maybe just think about giving it up to like a family that really wants it? Like, yeah. Mm. But see, that's why this is. It's not even just so much the word, which yeah, credit where credit is due. But the thing that I love about it is that. there's no real room for like in he makes Cronenberg makes the audience complicit in her viewpoint there's never any question of well I think she's making a bad decision here it's like Mm -hmm. no no uh get that out of her get that out of her for the love of all that is holy get it out of her yeah like pro-lifers where is the lime when it comes to this yeah (laughs) If there's a telepod and she might be having a maggot, like is then then it's okay, right? It's, it's okay, right? <laughs> yeah. At what stage of conception is the maggot alive, and at what point can we then no longer? Per- no, I'm not going to do it. Never mind. <laughs> <sighs> okay. <clears throat> yeah. So they go out for this fast food meal, and this is where Seth basically says, "Hey, I'm not quite <laughs> cheeseburger." This is where Seth says, you know what, I'm happy for you to write this article, I've come around on it, but also, if you can just wait and make me your project until I can actually teleport myself, that's the end game for him. Mm, I hope she writes that book anyway. Right? It could be a bestseller. (laughs) Uh, And then, yeah, this is where she then goes home after a long day, and there's a man showering in her apartment, and we learn, it's her dickish boss, he still has keys, and... I think that this is a fascinating way, like, there's so many shortcuts that Cronenberg takes in this film because he trusts the audience to pick it up. Like, he's not spoon-feeding us. He's saying, you'll figure it out. So he doesn't need to introduce Stathis as her ex in the first scene that they're in, and he trusts us to understand when Stathis gets out of the shower that he hasn't randomly gone into the wrong apartment. It's like, you get it, right? Okay, cool. Let's move on. So then we cut to the lab and Veronica is actively videotaping this. So we get our first big sequence where a live creature goes through the telepod and it is a baboon. Honestly, as soon as I saw a baboon, I thought, oh, fuck, I can't imagine being on that film set because that seems not great. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, I don't know much about baboons, but apparently, yeah, they can easily like harm people if they get angry. And I don't think Cronenberg particularly liked the monkey, uh, the baboon at all. (laughs) The only thing that I've read and I really want to know more is that you cannot train baboons. Mm -hmm. um, And apparently it had a thing for the script supervisor because she was kind of around its height. Yeah. uh, Jeff Goldblum is so freaking tall that the baboon just basically allowed Jeff Goldblum to be the alpha male on set and Uh, therefore made their life a lot easier. That's funny. It's also mildly terrifying. Yeah, apparently baboons are really bad with women in general. I think it's like that predatory thing where they like assert their dominance as like, hey, I want to be with you. But I'm just imagining Jeff Goldblum being like, okay, I'll grab the baboon in between... In between shoots. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so we put this baboon through and it does not go well. And this is our first big moment of practical effects in the film. It is splooshy. Is it inside out? Is that what it is? 
Yes. Yes. Okay. This is amazing. The twitching on it. But I also just couldn't stop thinking. Because, like, basically, this happens, and they got to clean it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how, does he, how does he clean this up? I mean, is it still alive? Yes. Would they have to kill it again or fully? I would think so. Yeah. Ugh. Gross. But, you know, it didn't jump across the room, so we didn't have to beat it with a lead pipe like the, like the monkey cat. There we go. <laughs> Uh, okay, so in the aftermath of all of this, this is where Ronnie begins to encourage him to open up and almost treat the camera like a confessional, like what we would see on reality TV nowadays. Like, how did you feel when you killed the baboon? I think this scene is great. I mean, I think I, I think it's a scene that could be cut, that that might have been cut if it wasn't like a if it was a lesser filmmaker. But I love like the intimacy of this scene. Hmm. Well, it, it's so important to show how well they can connect and the impact that she can have on him, not just for the work that he's doing scientifically, but also for the foundation of their relationship. Because I could easily see people watching this, like me, for the first time and saying, oh, they get really hot and heavy very quickly. Like, it's almost unbelievable. But I think because they're doing this kind of work, it actually becomes very easy to invest in the relationship. Yeah, because she's ba- she's not living with him, but she's basically living with him because she's recording every moment of every day. Yeah. And you do get that sense the time is passing, like they are getting to know each other. It's not like, oh, this is day one and she fucks him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which also, if she did, that would still be say, fine. It would still be fine if she did. <laughs> <laughs> Chemistry. Well, and they, they are, I mean, my God, this is a hot couple. Let's just put that on the record, shall we? I I've always loved Gina Davis and I find her so uniquely attractive and that that might sound like a dig but it's really not I just like she has a very distinct face and teeth and I just love it <laughs> she's got teeth unlike contemporary actresses <laughs> your standards are so high <laughs> I mean, th- th- there is a really mean family guy joke where they talk about her her tooth to gum ratio but I actually really like it I think she's a very attractive woman mm-hmm. yeah but I, I I take what you're saying, Trace, because in the 80s, we were still getting actors who had personality and they were distinct. Like they weren't kind of the cookie cutter, bland, beautiful, perfect yeah. people who have gone right. through the cosmetic factory. Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. So in the wake of this failure, he talks about how the computer is dumb. And that's one of the reasons why the experiment didn't work. But if you're reading between the lines, the computer is him. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it can't figure out what to do with flesh is symptomatic of the fact that he is this kind of immature, not quite virginal character, but like... Inexperienced, yeah. Yeah, he needs to get experience with this in order to teach the computer because he is it. Yeah. Um. Okay, so then, um. yeah, she takes him into the bedroom and they're like hanging out and it's it's very cozy. We get the funny anecdote where she accuses him of not bathing and he reveals that like einstein he only has five outfits of the exact same clothes and then they pork and it's good yay <laughs> so okay i i don't know if we're going to talk about this microchip in his back but my the only thing i wanted to bring up so yeah he he has this microchip in his back and it cuts him mm-hmm. she says she'll kiss it and she starts kissing the wound on his back and Again, I'm watching this movie with, like, AIDS allegory in my mind, and I'm just like, no, don't do that, don't do that. Yeah, which is also weird, because when you read about, like, we said, oh, one of the ways that people talk about this film is the AIDS allegory. But when they talk about the AIDS allegory, they're only talking about 
gay men. Like right. they're they're equating it's almost synonymous that AIDS equals gay. And so it's funny that in our perspective where we know more about the disease and how it transmits that we look at it and we're like, oh, that is not a safe sex practice. But in yeah. the 80s, they would have been like, oh, well, she's fine because she's not a dude. Because she's a woman. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the first instance of technologizing the body. And of course, this will continue yeah. as he incorporates not just the fly into his body, but the end. So it's kind of foreshadowing what he will become. I'm actually really glad you even use that. You even use that credit because now it's just like um, I don't know if I don't know if you've seen this Joe, but maybe Megan you have. But uh, the end with the the fly and the creature merging, it just reminds me of Tetsuo the Iron Man. Uh, I have not seen it, but I know what you're referencing. It is an experience that I don't ever care to revisit, but I appreciate it for the cinematic art it is. And surprise, <laughs> we're covering it next week. No. <laughs> That was I a love film how, school. Like rehearsed that was. You <laughs> <laughs> some film buff. Oh yeah, like no, 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 no to Tetsuo. What? Oh my god! No, I know it's amazing. I know. I just never <laughs> want to watch it again. <laughs> Megan, it's ended rehearsed because he said it on the pod maybe five times. Every time he brings it up, he's like, "It is an experience that I do not want to revisit." <laughs> That was it was a film school movie. So that was when I had no idea what I was walking into, walking into my fucking auditorium yeah. at like seven o'clock at night on a, on a oh. college night, and I was like, "Whoop!" Yeah, <laughs> the there's no preparing this? for that though. <laughs> uh, it's like the time I showed my students Showgirls. Okay, Surprised well, that... <laughs> I didn't get fired for that. Actually, I mean that is a longer experience. I think Tetsubo is like an hour and six minutes. But yes, ah, oh, there you go. Okay, <laughs> mini set. Like, thank God. <laughs> Uh, okay, so her talking about this wound and him realizing like, oh, okay, I need to learn more about the flesh. This is where he realizes, okay, cool. Um, I, I think I've kind of started to figure it out. So she's like, cool, you're working. Bye, I'm going to leave. This is where we get very jealous Stathis hanging out front of the lab waiting for her being like, what, did you walk him? Did you stay the night? And you're just like, I know that dude. He's not good. <sighs> Yeah, and also, I mean, like, I, uh, A, he has a vanity plate. (laughs) (laughs) Douche alert. uh, And the vanity plate is Particle, the name of the magazine he's the editor for. Right. But I do appreciate it. Or just this douche mobile. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I do appreciate that we, uh, similar to how Joe is really impressed that we get the word abortion in this movie, similarly impressed am I that we get the word cock in this movie. Yeah. He's big cock. It's like, okay, Stathis, take take it down a notch. <laughs> it's, I mean, because I usually associate the word cock with, like, it's very porny, right? Like, it's not really a word you see thrown around willy-nilly. You know, it's usually dick. Um, but so, that's kind of the point. He's being crass to yeah. int- intentionally offend her. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, and I love it. I mean, like, I don't love that he's offending her, but I love that it's in this movie. <laughs> well, he's trying to rile her up. So. Yeah. Normalize the cock. There we go. <laughs> Oh my god, there's our subtitle. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, so while they're having it out, uh, back in the lab, Seth has figured out the machine. So we do a second baboon test, and we can pop the champagne, because this time it is successful. So I love that Ronnie, in her kind of like, I'm falling in love with you, says, maybe we should go away, let's take a vacation. (laughs) And uh, sadly, that doesn't happen, because she also notices that Stathis has done a passive-aggressive dick move and sent a particle cover mock-up, which looks like shit, by the way. (laughs) 
<laughs> it looks very 80s to yeah. me. Yeah, uh, that it is does. fair. Yeah. But, okay, so he- here's the thing, right? This is this is the the inciting incident basically for the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. If she had just said, "Okay, he's my ex-husband, he's a dick. I'm going to go tell him off." None of the rest of the movie would have happened. <laughs> Yeah. But then what? again, like, this is where his inexperience comes into play. Because yeah. she literally tells him, I mean, she doesn't spell it out for him, but she's like, this is just residue on my shoe I am scraping off for the last time. Love that That's line. a pretty hard, st- yeah, it's a great line, and it's a pretty hard, clear stance that she is not mm-hmm. harboring any romantic feelings. No. This is not a rendezvous, but he's another insecure male who's fairly in- inexperienced, mm-hmm. who has been getting drunk off of champagne. Yes. Yeah. 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 Folks, this is why this is why you don't do science and drink at the same time. Bad yeah. shit happens. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I just, could, could you imagine like make being the inventor of this and being like, okay, well, it hasn't been tested on human subjects yet, and just getting drunk and being like, well, I'm gonna test it out. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna show her because she's right? getting back with her ex. This is yeah. It's the height of male hubris, like stupid mm-hmm. men. Trying to get back at women. Hey, I'm just going to prove her wrong by climbing in my experimental teleportation device. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it's kind of like a parallel, you know, that most people respond poorly to Stathis. Mm-hmm. And he's essentially pulling a very Stathis moment here. Yes. But yeah. we we sympathize with him. So Yeah. Well, and I think at this point, we... I mean, we've all been drunk. Uh, we've all done some pretty stupid things that we probably regret under the influence. And yeah. Seth is so childlike in his wonder, in his excitement, and also in yeah, his inexperience in dating that you just think, oh, yeah, okay, this dude, he's just making a bad decision. It just so yeah. happens to be the one that will literally kill him. Yeah. Yes. Which, again, if you're talking about an AIDS allegory, it's like, oh... Okay, so awesome. one bad decision could one kill you. One mistake, one tiny yeah. mistake. And yeah. it's a death sentence, and it's yeah. about waiting, 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 mm-hmm. waiting. Yeah. Okay, so initially it seems like this experiment is a success. He makes it through the teleportation, and he is completely fine. So Ronnie returns, and they have some vigorous sex, and uh, she discovers that there's hairs growing out of the cut in his back. And she thinks it's a little bit weird, but you know what? It doesn't matter because he is now super strong, he's got great (laughs) reflexes, he's performing gymnastics, and I'm not going to lie... In a 2021 lens, this reminded me of all of those stupid scenes from Spider-Man movies after Peter Parker gets bitten, and then he's like, I can climb up the walls, I can shoot webbing. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I want to I wanna see a Cronenberg Spider-Man film. I mean... Th- this is it. The, right? The, the, the body horror. Yeah, Actually, no, you're right. You are right, Megan, because if I remember correctly, in Spider-Man, there is it Man-Spider, but where Spider-Man actually becomes a giant spider? Mm-hmm. And it's really horrifying. But yeah, yes. like that, that, is, that is what this is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the reality is, is that it wouldn't just be, you know, sunshine and kittens and like, ooh, I can jump between buildings. It would be, oh, fuck, I'm turning into a giant spider. <laughs> And I'm, like, eating people. That's right. I mean, again, be it AIDS or cancer, any kind of, like, life-threatening disease. Like, you know, I, I vocalized on this podcast before that I, I love body horror, but it's also, for me, one of the most difficult things for me to watch. Because me personally, and I'm sure a lot of people are, I'm very, very aware of my body and what it looks like. And I know 
when something is not right with my body. And it, it, if I, even one thing is out of place or it pops up or whatever, I, I am stressed. I can't get any work done. I can't function because I am so stressed about this abnormality. And I mean, not that I've had a lot of abnormalities in my body, mind you, but just, <laughs> just saying. That's good. That's but good. like, I, but so, so even watch this, even though I mean, I, on a rewatch, just watch this movie and being like, oh, like there's hairs that you have to like take these fucking garden shears out to cut off your back. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it is so terrifying. It's, it's, worrisome that he's not more worried about it until way later in the film (laughs) but it's so uh that's the deniability to me like i'm Mm -hmm. not dissimilar from you i think most people are are hyper aware of like their bodies and how they look and that sort of thing but when you notice that something isn't quite right there's also that thing where you say well, maybe I'll just wait and it'll get better. Or I don't want to address that right now because I can't control it because your body is a fucking weird machine that does unusual things. Well, because also it's like, well, if I go to the doctor, I'm going to have an answer. I don't, I might not mm-hmm. like what I hear. So yes. I, if, I, if I put it off long enough, it might go away and I might not have to deal with it. But like, there's a universal concern there, right? Like, like we can all relate to that. Like having something like hair is pop. I mean, I haven't had hair pop out of my back yet. Although maybe I will one day. Oh, baby, <laughs> give that time. Wait until they come out of your ear. Then you're in for a world of fun. Oh, I've already Uh-oh. had to tweeze my nose hairs a lot. So like, <laughs> I, I got the nose. <laughs> Hopefully not with garden shears. No. Right. <laughs> But that's something we can all relate to. So even though we're not turning into flies, we can all relate to like, oh, like something popped up on my body and it's not supposed to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what this film does so well, right? It's basically mm-hmm. saying, oh, you had this, just not to this extreme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what you do to deal with that is you go for coffee. You get a cappuccino and you dump as much sugar as you can sort of humanly manage into it. And you have a giant freak out monologue. He gets louder and louder. And I didn't know if it was just like, oh, like maybe like in the world of the film, he's actually not talking that loudly. But I think he is. He is coked out of his mind here. It is bizarre. He's not coked out of his mind. He's sugared out of his mind. Yeah. I mean, I know. I know that really. I know he's not really coked out, but that's but what he's he doing. Might be. But uh, I, I kind of feel like that's a scene that exemplifies like what Trey said earlier. How do you not have these experiences and and think i should go to the doctor i don't think it's deniability for him at least not for a while Mm -hmm. i think it's more like this is how they're exemplifying like the chemical changes in his brain yeah he's having a personality shift he's thinking he's spider-man the superhero that this is great and i can last in bed all day long how do you have any fluids left in your body yeah yeah and you know he he makes a reference to where he's like it's like I'm on drugs but like you know it's it's not the um like without the bad side effects or whatever and yeah. I, I actually I looked for some but I didn't really come up with anything substantial but like a a, a reading of this film like viewing Seth's metamorphosis as like an allegory for addiction I saw people reference it but not like do a critical deconstruction or anything but, yeah because for me I mean yeah in these early scenes it's like okay he is he is at the high he he yeah. is enjoying his high at the moment and it's great. And it's he's about to start the come down, which is not going to be great. Um, and I mean, like, I mean, there's not, of course, one drug to compare this to. But I would, I mean, if I was going to put one on there, it'd be meth, because yeah. meth like really changes your your appearance right. <laughs> more so than some other drugs. 
And I think, yeah, he's also now developing the temperament of a bit of an addict, right? Where he used to be a really nice guy and all of a sudden he's flipping on her. So after the sex and after the hair clipping, this is where we get the moment where he turns on her and he calls her a drag and a chicken shit. And because he wants her to go through the teleporter and she's like, no. Yes. (laughs) Smart girl. Smart girl. Oh my gosh. Just I'm, I'm trying to put myself in her position right where the person that you're falling for is acting very unusually like kind of out of control they're lashing out at you and demanding that you go through their experimental teleportation device just i'm i'm i need to leave oh is that my cell phone i'm sorry i've got to (laughs) go not in the 80s (laughs) (laughs) oh is that my battery pack escape from new york (laughs) (laughs) Do we have a non-designer phone booth? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, he's like, oh, you can make a phone call. It's right in there in that little booth thing. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay, so so she does leave, and then he... Goes on a bender. More or less, yeah. So it's important to note, too, that he changes his outfit here. So technically, he kind of changes it when he gets drunk on champagne before he goes through the teleportation device. But the shirt that he wears here, and I'm going to reference William Beard, who is the guy I, I always reference whenever we talk about Cronenberg, because he wrote a book on I was about to be like, him. wait, why is that important? <laughs> so... As you'll remember, we have the establishment that he has one outfit and five copies of it, and it's very subdued, kind of bland, 80s tan and taupe. Mm-hmm. And then here, he puts on a shirt that's like kind of a blood red or like a, a dried red color, and it's like flesh. It's the color of the steak that he serves her earlier. And this is when he kind of moves from an educated man who is in charge of his principles to uh, William Beard actually calls him a lumberjack and like a more lower class status. So he suddenly is hanging out at dive bars. Suddenly he's arm wrestling strangers so that he can take home women. Uh, So it's part of his like descent vocalized through costume. Yeah. So he ends up winning this arm wrestling by breaking a man's hand. And then he brings home Tawny, who is played by Joy Bouchelle, so that they can have a lot of sex. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I mean, like, because the sex in this movie isn't particularly graphic, which surprised me a little bit coming from Cronenberg. Like, even in this scene, which is kind of, I mean, <laughs> this girl. She's oh, really wary of him. He, he's already got lesions, like, on his face. Like, he yes. already doesn't look well. No. But I love that after, and love in quotation marks, um, after he wins this arm wrestling competition, he he's dragging her down the street, and he's like, we're going to go to my house. And she goes, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> there's no... This is the part where I'm talking about. Yeah. I question, you know, when you pull up in that alley, it looks a little seedy, mm-hmm. but at least Ronnie has judgment. Yes. What? child what is going on in your life oh you poor mess yeah there's a tiny spinoff where we learn all about her (laughs) like why is she in this position that she is willing to be manhandled by a stranger out of a bar down the street through a cavalcade of bars because trey she doesn't just immediately agree to go to his house the night is too young she wants to go to more bars more bars yeah and then she's passing out in the stairwell unable to move because the elevator doesn't work so he carries her up so that they can then have sex and the way 
he goes through the pods another time. Yeah. And then he comes out and basically just like leap fucks her. And it's really uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) It's uncomfortable from the moment that she's like, okay, sure, you won me in a bet. Let's go. Mm -hmm. What? Ah, And Joe, you just watched She's All That. So she's a fucking bet. Yeah, basically. Like... (laughs) That you just wove in she's all that to the fly <laughs> she's all fly it's Cronenberg's favorite movie fly. did you know she Tony is not all that sorry ah <laughs> uh, but Megan you never got to the makeover scene yeah yeah she's in dire need of one mm. she turns into a giant baboon no we need to get her a daily affirmation calendar. Love yourself, girl. Mm-hmm. You, you don't need this. Yeah, Tani, you need to go to some kind of yoga or like recentering meditation retreat. You need to discover who hurt you. Uh, you need to stop going to dive bars in Toronto. And yeah, just love yourself, girl. Being completely out of your mind. One red flag after another after another. Mm-hmm. And she's still like, sure, let me just get more drunk before we go yeah. back to your place. It, 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 yeah, it's it's very uncomfortable, which I'm sure is by design. Oh, but sure. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's just like, ugh. And this is why the love story element is integral. Because in other scenarios, you should be losing sympathy with him fast. Yes. But and I, I, I mean, and we don't know yet per se. But I do love that at least we get that mentioned later, where he's like, "The flies' like impulses and instincts mm-hmm. are taking over. Like I'm not. It's harder to resist them." So, on the, at least on that level, you know, like there's an excuse there. Whereas early movie Stathis, there isn't. <laughs> it's like a reverse journey for the both of them. Yeah, I mean, he's still very much in his like dickish phase at this point. So uh, it's important to note that this is when Ronnie comes in. She actually prevents him from dragging poor Tawny through the hypercubes. Hypercube. Oh, my God. Different Canadian movie. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Did you just watch Cube 2 Hypercube recently? (laughs) Designer cubes. Um, but no, yeah, she's really lucky that Veronica shows up just in time <laughs> before he can toss her in the uh, in the pod. And really, I mean, it's a little bit challenging because there's so few characters in this film that even the introduction of this tawny woman does stand out. But at the end of the day, she's not a character. Like, we never see yeah. her again. We don't explore, you know, hopefully she went to therapy to process what happened to her in these moments. But uh, she's here. She got... Plan B. Can you imagine? Oh there's there's probably fly babies somewhere out there in Toronto now. Oh my god! Well, I mean, because so, I haven't seen the fly too. I tried to watch it today, but it's not streaming anywhere. Eh. So I <laughs> so I actually I, I bought Scream Factory's The Fly Set that has all three original films and these and these two because I'm like oh, I'll watch them one day. But because Megan, you've actually written about both of these films uh, for your it came from the '80s column. Yes, the special Chris Wallace who did the special effects here actually directed the fly too okay so it looks good it looks it well it has some really good gross out effects um and it it has some interesting plot threads but if you love this movie and you love the characters it's very hard to watch because they do ronnie so dirty yeah i mean spoiler alert but they they kill her in the opening scene don't they yeah she gives birth and she dies in childbirth oh, which come goes on. very very much against everything established in this movie and really it's just a justification so that you could follow the Brundle son. And I bring it up only because it honestly would have made sense to be like, hey, remember that girl that he had sex with in the first movie? Maybe mm-hmm. they can yeah. do that with her. 
that would have been way better. It still would have been a Brundle baby. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know, the only one that did return was John Getz. Yeah, in a yeah. brief moment, and it's like so that stuff doesn't work. If you could take them out of the equation, that the fly sequel will be way more embraced. There's a lot to love about it, but that's a hard <laughs> sticking point. And nothing says a kick to the face like, hey, remember this character that you love? We're bringing them back to kill them in the first scene. Yeah, different actress. Yeah, yeah, yeah Gina, Gina Davis wouldn't return. Yeah, good for her. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so in this moment, though, Gina Davis has returned as Ronnie. So yeah, she, she saves Tawny, and she tries to convince Seth, hey, you're acting differently. Also, I tested those hairs from your back, and there's definitely something insecty about them. And he's like, no, I'm perfectly fine. Look, I'm punching through this wall. Wouldn't I be fine if I could do that? (laughs) Um, Okay, so over time, he does notice that he is changing. It takes him quite a long time. (laughs) (laughs) So this scene that we're about to get, um, the the first time I ever saw any scene from this movie, it was The Fly was on TV, and it was this fucking fingernail scene. Yeah. So I I don't do pus, and I don't do eye. no. Nope. Uh, pus and uh, nails. Nails are really my thing. So that this scene mm-hmm. somehow combines both of those things. Yes. <laughs> this is horrific. Yeah. I Not only are we losing teeth, he pulls a nail off, and then he ejaculates pus out of his fingertip. Mm-hmm. I... <laughs> Gross. Yeah. Squirter. For me, this is... <laughs> Megan. He's a squirter. <laughs> For me, this is very firmly steeped in like, oh, he's now entering the adolescence phase of his metamorphosis. And uh, Beard kind of says the same thing where it's basically like, oh, he's masturbating. He's not showering. Like, it's very important that the scene takes place in a bathroom because that's where a teenager would kind of be discovering new parts about themselves. And yes, it just happens to be really graphically gross. <laughs> Do, yes. Are y'all surprised there's not a scene where he loses his penis? Because he clearly does at some point between between reels. Uh, I'm a little surprised there isn't more of Bitch, that. Bitch, come on. This is classy. This is classy. But don't they pretty much show it in his museum of body parts? Like Maybe. Once... I've rewound it, not gonna lie. <laughs> and I was like, what are some of these pieces? Megan's like, where's that gold bloom dick? I need to see <laughs> where if it's in is there. it? It's got a the staff that said it was gonna be big. Is it big? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. In his medicine cabinet, he's got all of his teeth and all of this other shit that's mm-hmm. fallen out of his yeah, body. Yeah, but we don't Ugh. know what it is, and it has to. One of those pieces has to be his dick because yeah. he has oh, no sure. need for it at this at this point. Mm-hmm. Oh God! I mean, just imagine. Just imagine your dick falling off. I mean, not, not you, Megan, but <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes, let me try. <laughs> So he runs a couple of tests because now he's convinced that something is wrong. And yes, this is where we get confirmation that he has been fused at the molecular level with the fly. And then we get the most random edit in this entire film. It's a literal fade to black that's like, insert commercial here. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't get it. It 
was so jarring. Anyway. Maybe it was because it was supposed to be a big reveal, so it was, like, easing us out of the scene. Like, maybe he was like, uh, just a regular cut is too fast? I don't know. Well, oftentimes, people will use a fade to black to connote that time is passing, which is what does mm. end up happening here. Like, when we yeah. next check in with him, he has depreciated quite a bit. Um, <laughs> it's been, like, four weeks, right? Yeah, it. I I didn't catch the time, but it's like clearly been a while. Mm-hmm. When when he calls her, she's like, "I've been trying to reach you for four weeks." Uh, there we go. There you okay. go. There you go. It's almost like Megan watched the movie and paid attention or something. <laughs> she, I do that sometimes. She took notes. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, "No visible dick," and also four weeks. Yes. Yeah, I rewound for some Brundle dick and could it's- not spot it, but I do know that it's been four weeks. <laughs> oh since my he's god, been the porn parody <laughs> Brundle dick. <laughs> Oh my god. No, it's not the fly, it's just the cock. Boo. And he's becoming a cock. I don't know, I guess. <laughs> you gotta be more creative than that. We're gonna workshop that. The cock that. could just be anything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, what? Okay. Wait, is yeah, it. Workshop. We're wait, workshopping in, it. In this version of yours, Trace, did he go through and like he merged with a penis? Yeah, with a penis. And he's yeah, becoming so he's a becoming, giant penis? Yeah, he's becoming like a giant penis. So it's okay. not. Oh, but maybe it's a different animal's penis so it's different dna because like if it's a regular penis it's still the same human dna so he won't like change but maybe right. he would i don't know uh, ignore me we're all thinking or wondering okay moving on moving on um yes okay so seth actually calls ronnie and she comes to see him and yeah it's a bit of a disaster like the maid has not been here in a while the exact he says you were right i'm diseased and i might be contagious somehow so that's mm-hmm. where we're, we're really pulling in like the, the the virus stuff here yeah but it really is so i mean he vomits his ear falls off gross she hugs him gross <laughs> my note is just no <laughs> so immediately when she hugs him you know he says i'm scared help me please help me he's so pathetic it's like that's when you get on board right so in an interview i don't know when this was but it was it's clearly like post 2000 but gina davis was like it was really because like we didn't realize how gross like how much of a reaction that scene when i hug him was gonna get but the problem was if you were in a theater in the 80s like watching this movie people were so vocal when i hugged him that they were missing his lines of i'm scared help me please help me and that's that was really a bummer but i'm glad that scene worked for everybody (laughs) (laughs) yeah that oh it's do you remember vocal theaters everybody it's (laughs) vaguely (laughs) yeah because these are like really important moments in grounding the film like reestablishing that the relationship between these two is paramount even though he is starting to look not human anymore and and his physicality you know he's doing those little fly twitches that i'm just like ooh, like Mm-hmm. He was actually asked, uh, hey, can you pick something that we can use in like with the prosthetics to make sure that people can like pick it up? So that was apparently Jeff Goldblum's contribution. Oh, all right. He's like, cool, I can do a tick. They were like, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> uh, okay, so we follow Ronnie back to Monolith Publishing. And this is where Stathis is greedy for the scoop. So he asks her to tape seth and she does but also seth is kind of he's come out of the funk uh he's he's almost embracing it with like a renewed energy which is interesting because i know if 
people are familiar with folks who have long-term illnesses, they go through periods like this where sometimes they're very weak or they're very morose and then other part other times they have moments where they're like super lively and it seems like they're back to their regular capacity. And so this moment where he's crawling up the walls and he seems excited, you're like, oh, maybe he's going to be okay. But no, this is only going to end in tragedy. But yeah, it's, it's like manic depressive. A little bit. I will say uh, for a first time watch this scene, I know that there was like an emotional component and I'm supposed to be paying attention to what he's saying. I was so fascinated by how Cronenberg shot it. And then, of course, when you find out that they used a Ferris wheel, you're like, mm. what? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, I think it's almost exactly what they use in Poltergeist, one of the moms getting pulled around the, the, the ceiling. Uh, okay. But yeah, uh, there's also some behind-the-scenes footage of him and Gina Davis just like walking, like like crawling on the wall together as the room rotates. Ah, that's so fun. Yeah. (laughs) See, that's when I'm like, oh, I don't want the full face of makeup where I have to breathe through the straw for five hours. I want (laughs) to like play on the roof for a little while. There you go. Um, yeah, so this is where he declares that he is becoming Brundle Fly, and he is open to her recording it. I did love his line, potentially for a children's book. Oh, because we, we hear him, because we know he's going to vomit, but, but one thing we don't get in the final product of this movie, that th- there is one scene later that they did film, but uh, it, it's his, like, sucker that comes out of his mouth. Oh. Because, um, uh, so, you know, because the enzyme he vomits up, you know, dissolves the solid food so he can suck it up in liquid form. Right. When he vomits on Stathis's foot later, there is footage of um, the puppet of the fly um, sucking all the goo out of the ankle. Oh, really? Yeah. It's really gnarly. Um, Why didn't they keep that? I just wonder if maybe it was like, oh, this is... Too much? Yeah, they, they, they wanted to focus on, like, Veronica, maybe. I don't know. Maybe they were trying to retain the humanity as long as possible. Yeah. Because I think at that point, even, we're still kind of rooting for him. Like, yeah, maybe fuck Stathis up a little bit, but don't kill him. Don't kill him. And he's still, this is before his jaw. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah. When we we get to that, I mean, okay, I I will (laughs) keep my mouth shut. Yeah, Yeah, because we we need to focus on another prosthetic piece, which is uh, we're up to Ronnie's dream sequence, which, of course, the way that Cronenberg films this, you don't know that it's a dream until what? Like Dr. Cronenberg actually playing this uh, gynecologist, because, of course. um, Which is a callback to Dead Ringers, I feel like, right? Dead Ringers happens next. No, it does not! Oh, fuck! <laughs> it's actually way more basic than that. Gina Davis is in such a compromised position, she asked him to do this. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, she felt comfortable with Cronenberg, which I think is fantastic considering he didn't even really want to cast her initially. Like, look, you can have emotional growth in a relationship between a director and an actress. <laughs> yeah. She has nothing but wonderful things to say about him. But actually, that's something that, I mean, I don't know... I'm sure there's a reason that men are put in stirrups. They're just they're not. It's not coming to my head right now. But I think that is something that we, as um, as a gender, uh, t- take for granted of, as not to not have to go to a a a, 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 specific, a doctor specific for our reproductive organs. Really, like women do all all the time. Because I just imagining being in stirrups, it feels so exposed. It is cold and drafty and 
clinical and weird. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, I, I I get that. If you're going to be in that position on a set yeah. where there's everybody around, yeah. like yeah, do do somebody that you trust that makes you comfortable because it's not a comfortable position to be in. Mm-hmm. I believe it. Yeah, even if it is a, a recreation or a fabrication, it's like, uh, this is this is a little lifelike. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we think of the giant larvae maggot baby? Oh, it looks great. It looks fucking gross. <laughs> <laughs> it's Just so put big. Some, like KY on that, get it all slimy and it's effective. Like period. It's ugh. Mm-hmm. Well, th- they apparently did use a lot of KY um in the deleted scene. So after the monkey cat went um he he basically like falls down the side of the building um when you know one of his legs like bursts out of his side. But I guess to make sure like when filming it that like the suit didn't get stuck on any brick or anything to make sure like it didn't get pulled off of Goldblum as he was falling down the side of the building. Gosh. They lubed his body, uh, the suit up with KY jelly. <laughs> right. To prevent injury, use KY. There you go. Uh, okay, so we turn back to the Brundlefly and he has deteriorated even further to the point where his computer no longer recognizes his voice. This is also when he starts losing teeth. So if you're not good with that, this is... Um, I mean, really, the film is just getting, it's like, hey, what's your triggers? Fingernails, got it. Well, Teeth, actually, got it. Vomit, got it. <laughs> for you, w- was the body horror not as prevalent throughout the film's runtime as you thought it was going to be? Um, I was more fascinated with the way that they use the makeup to convey the different stages. So I, I kind of knew about the body horror because when you search the film, the imagery that comes up is often of the later stages yeah. of what the fly looks like so i was expecting it what i wasn't expecting was how many different versions that like i kind of thought it was jeff goldblum and then i thought it was the fly and i didn't realize that there's like four different kind of looks that he goes through Mm -hmm. throughout the course of the film seven really at least as far as the makeup effects are concerned they created seven stages wow And, and we will link to megan's piece on this because she wrote a really good article on the effects work too it just it it's so impressive it's to the point where like it's so realistic it's so just like you can't watch this movie and not feel icky because the practical effects and the makeup are so realistic and convincing it feels like your like your tv is just like oozing stuff it it's like a goal I mean, I, I, not to sound like one of those horror fans it's like oh, I wish it was like the 80s again um, but, <laughs> but I wish it was the 80s again well because, because here's the thing and I, uh, we'll never know for sure because I don't see this getting remade anytime soon but y'all know that if this got remade it would be CGI and you know as someone who even likes the thing prequel remake from 2011 like I, I it, it, it would have been better had they gone practical for sure yeah. 100% which of course was the intention but then they like what went over it with CGI after yeah <laughs> I think that's a, that's a case with a lot of movies, you know, where people have issues with, like, the VFX, but the VFX is usually, like, an enhancer. Yeah. Like, Crimson Peak, everybody hated the ghosts of Crimson Peak, but guess what? They were practical. It's just the ectoplasm effect over it that made them look so, like, CG. Yeah. Right. Yep. So, yeah. It's just disappointing that they don't trust the practical effects or... Or they feel like they have to augment them, but then they accidentally ruin them, and nobody can yeah. figure out how to get it back. And granted, I, I get I get it to an extent, because it's like, I'm sure it's less work now to do something CG instead of build practical puppets and shit, and like hire the team for that or whatever. Right. But it's just like, y'all, <laughs> come on. Like, look at this movie. Look I, at I this know. movie. 
And it ages way better than... And that's the thing. Yeah. 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 Well, actually, that's the fly. But yes. um, It is the thing, too. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The original, the, I'm sorry, the, the second, the thing. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, you know, when they talked about doing the Blob remake uh, within the last few years, right. they, the plan was for it to be CG. Well, that is not no. going to, to look great. I don't need to see a CG Blob. Look, no. The, the only benefit, it, here's the thing, if they remake the Blob, I'm going to go see it. But obviously, <laughs> I'm hoping for practical effects. But the, the, the best thing that will come out of that, if it ever happens is that it will bring people, bring more people to that 1988 film. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which I, you know, I won't dismiss any remake outright, but there is a lot to be said. And I think it has a lot to do with how much in hyperdrive everything is these days. Mm -hmm. There's an oversaturation. Film productions took a lot longer. They had more time for that. Now it's like you it's a get that out and yes, turn them out, turn them out. We do not have time to build these massive sets and right. it's a shame. And when they do, people don't go, you know? Ugh. Yeah. I have nothing to add to that except just so that you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a testament right. that when a film puts in the effort, people need to fucking get off their asses and go and financially support it because if we don't then we're telling a message like oh well we don't value this so don't bother making it yeah and that's what happens you put your money where your mouth is yeah yeah um okay so ronnie swings by this is where i think for me this is probably the emotional core of the film it's hard to imagine Jeff Goldblum doing all of this under all of the prosthetics and like the makeup, but he, he's kind of babbling. He's talking about how he's becoming more insect than man. He's got that fantastic reference. I'm an insect who dreamt that he was a man, which is a reference to the Chinese philosopher Chang Zhu. And obviously there's that deleted scene where Ronnie's baby was going to turn into a butterfly that they. Yeah. That, that by the way is the end. That was the original, one of the original endings of like, so we were going to, we were going to end with her in bed with Stathis and then dreaming about the butterfly baby, or I guess really how I don't really understand what it was, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I just love how kind of philosophical this all is. And then it ends with that terrible moment where he says, you need to leave because I mean, he's, he's, more or less saying, if you stay, I'm going to hurt you because I can't control myself anymore. And oh, it, like if you're at all emotionally invested in the romance, this is more or less where it ends because you will never be the same after this. But it's it's really hard. Like it's so good. Mm-hmm. But he also looks like hot garbage. And <laughs> you're just like, no, bitch, run, get out of there. Because she's going here to tell him about the baby. Right. And she decides in that moment not to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's rough stuff. But of course, uh, she can't help herself by telling Stathis that she didn't tell him when she gets outside, and he's up on the roof listening to her. So now he does know that he has a progeny. So when we say the A word, and we go to the doctor, Seth Brundlefly just bursts in and abducts her. Also, the good I mean, this doctor's a bit like resistant at first, but like good on him for being like, all right, well, let's do the abortion. Yeah, it's this funny thing about how it's a woman's body and her choice. I guess as a doctor, I could just do what I'm being asked to do. I mean, he does have some reluctance because it's the middle of it the night. It is the middle of the night, yeah. Really weird, but, you know. <laughs> Are you like, sure okay. you can't wait until the morning when the office is open? <laughs> it's it's not that it's the abortion, it's that it's the middle of the night. <laughs> 
Yeah, of all the things to want in the middle of the night, that's it does scream hysterics. But we know as viewers mm-hmm. that she, she's got valid reasons. There Dude. is a deleted bit too, where um, when he brings her into the room and he's like, "Oh, people actually find TV very soothing, um, like a, like a good like uh, a precursor to that to the anesthesia or whatever." And he turns on like a little mini TV next to the table, and it's like a bunch of babies like playing in a playpen. Oh, oh, what? <laughs> And, and he's like, oh, maybe not tonight. <laughs> also, call, have you call. read the good the good Lord's word? I've got these pamphlets <laughs> and magazines for you to look at. Okay, yeah. So she has been abducted and brought back to the Brundlefly lab. And Stathis has snuck in. Uh, this is where Stathis loses both his hand and foot with vomit. This is horrific. Fantastic. I- uh, like, I don't, it looks like stop motion when his hand is slowly dissolving, but it looks great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, get a little Hellraiser vibes, not gonna lie. The Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, like the faces. Yes. Oh, so good. So, uh, yeah, so he, he does want to continue going. It almost looks like he wants to do it to Stathis's face, and that's when Ronnie stops him. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, okay. Things are getting serious, so just getting there. Just getting serious. <laughs> just just now. Just only in this moment. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I I found the the suggestion, you know, I kind of knew exactly where this was all gonna go because I can't say that the narrative it's very, very well executed, but it's also like you can figure out where we're going. I never anticipated that he would want to merge with her and the baby. So I guess maybe it wouldn't be possible unless that act unless this plan actually happened. But I have also like been in- intrigued by any trans reading of this film, right? Merging, if we're going on a binary gender system, mm-hmm. male, female, and whatever the baby is. I think it's fascinating that he would want that, period. But I guess maybe that's the fly brain creeping into him. I think that's a scientist brain because... She's obviously not going to birth this baby for nine months, right? Mm -hmm. Or eight months or whatever. Um, That's his DNA. That's probably his best shot at returning to his former human self is through that DNA. And the only way to get that DNA is to merge with her as well. Right. Because she's carrying it. Mm. So it's like... That's that's the last shremnit, like shard, remnant, whatever, words are hard, uh, (laughs) of, of like... His scientist brain logically thinking this could be my last shot at at getting out of this. Yeah. I think in a disgusting, less artsy version of this, he would have maybe tried to cut her open to get at the direct progeny. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's also something that I do like about this, right? Is that like this this female character I I feel is respected throughout the entirety of the film's runtime. And it's never like gross i mean it is gross but like not (laughs) not in that respect yeah a different kind of gross yeah Yeah. well trace to come back to your potential trans reading i did find an interview between willow mckay and caden gardner uh it's a recurring piece called body talk conversations on transgender cinema and they talk a little bit about their personal relationships i i gathered that caden identifies as, as trans and they talk about their relationship broadly to Cronenberg and talk about how his films often have um, a bit of a trans read because it's about not feeling at ease in your own body and how like your skin morphing and deteriorating is gross and disturbing. And so there's that. They also mention a 
the idea of killing your past self to bring a newer version of yourself into existence. And I thought that that was an interesting piece specifically with this moment, because in a way you almost get the impression that Seth wants to like, A, he did it originally when he went through the telepod and then he came out different and he feels more himself, like all the part that we talked about, like addiction. I think in this case, you could also read it as, oh, he's trying to find the newer improved version of himself via this. And then emerging with his progeny. I would even go as far to say like a, (laughs) I don't want to use the phrase master race, but like a new like superhuman race. Right. Yeah. Like he's trying to find the better version and, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And then the final piece is that uh, the failed science experiment is not inherently different from the people who died transitioning when surgeries were brand new and doctors didn't know what they could and couldn't do. It's an Icarus syndrome and it's inherent in us. Uh, I like that. I mean, I don't like it, but you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So as always, we're always interested to hear people's different readings on this. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think Cronenberg's films often play with the idea of as they suggested not being at ease in your own body but then uh, I think most people would say oh well if you're really looking for a film that better suits a trans reading it's probably Videodrome yeah yeah or or I mean uh, 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 David's son (laughs) doing Possessor right yes yeah which we talked about on Patreon we did go listen to that yeah Okay, um, so we're up to the moment where Ronnie tries to kind of fight back a little bit, and she takes a swipe. She takes off his jaw, and this is where the rest of his skin starts to shed. Okay, so I feel bad for you, Joe, because I feel like you've probably seen this before. I saw the finished result, so I didn't actually see how this all plays out, and it was glorious. It's great, right? (laughs) I I was, like, leaning closer to the TV because I was just in practical effects heaven. (laughs) It's it's the face breaking and the eyes. Like, Mm -hmm. the eyes... They they push out. Yeah, they just... Yeah, and then they just, like, disappear. It, It is... I don't, I don't know. I don't know how they did this, but it's amazing. Well, I love, I, and Megan, you can probably talk a bit more on this, but I heard that they were looking to deliberately avoid the effects work that had been done, like the same kind of effects work as the Howling and American Werewolf in London. Like they didn't want to reproduce that. So they had to try to find a different way of making this transformation more compelling. That is true of pretty much all all practical effect movies. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, they Just are living very in the shadow. gung-ho about not wanting to replicate. Like, we, The Howling and American Werewolf in London, yeah. one of them specifically was trying to avoid doing the other, so they didn't do the bladder work that the other did so that they would be different. Yes. So, yeah, and it really wouldn't have made sense for the fly anyways. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very insectoid, and they, they were trying hard to go with that mm-hmm. success yeah oh, it's so good so trace you said that this is a puppet that they have at the end yeah it, it is a puppet once the jaw comes off we are no longer working with mr goldblum okay because nope. i will say i was actually surprised at how present he is throughout this i actually thought that as soon as he starts to change that they basically just swap him out because i mean it still looks like him obviously but so like late in the game, I honestly felt like, oh, they they could have just brought in somebody different and had like a heavily made up person yeah. instead. 
Nope. Um, I mean, so it, it was a, whenever he jumps into the gynecologist's office, um, that is a stunt double for the jump itself. Okay. But once it cuts to him, like, standing there, it's back to him. So hmm. Goldblum is very insistent on doing his being, like, on screen for his character as much as possible. Interesting. Okay. I think, wouldn't that also be by design as well? Because I remember... It was either the commentary or or an interview with Cronenberg where he was saying that, you know, you're not really in once the transformation kind of happens or the swap happens in the original, you're you're not really in the character's head anymore. You don't really know what's going on. Whereas here you stay with Goldblum as much as possible and he's walking you through everything that's happening to him, Mm -hmm. which hits that much harder on an emotional level. Oh my gosh. So Joe, what happens in the original is like about I think it's about 30, the same as this movie, 30 minutes in, he goes through the thing. He has the head of a fly and the left arm of a fly, and he wears like a blanket over his head for basically the entire second act, so his uh, wife can't see him. Okay. But he keeps <laughs> communicating with her through notes. And he does, right. like, he does, like, they do converse, they do talk, he tells her what's happening, but it doesn't have the same impact because he is literally a man with his head under a blanket for the entire second act of this film. <laughs> wow. That is a choice. Okay. Well, and then the reveal is played for va- shock value. Like, basically, what what the jaw rip is here is what the blanket coming off in the original one serves as, narratively speaking. Right, when she realizes, oh my god, you don't have a human face anymore. Well, and he, he, she knows that, she just hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is basically the climax. He has determined that he is going to throw her in this pod, so he manages to get her in there. It is a little damsel in distressy. Oh, that's your sticking point, because Stathis has to save her. Yeah, yeah, I did not appreciate that at all. I mean, I do appreciate that at the end, she yeah. is the one who ultimately pulls the trigger when... Um, Ugh, I ooh, the reveal of the Brundlefly coming out mixed with the telepod. Ooh, <laughs> it's good stuff. It's just... Yeah, it's gross. It's gross. Yeah, and then she ultimately pulls the trigger. She puts him out of his misery after he asks her, and then the film is done immediately. Th- that's the thing, right? <laughs> so basically, it is just her sobbing, cut to black. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. The opera tragedy. I don't find this mean. This very much feels like mad scientist learns his lesson, but it's the romance that makes it go down easy so that, well, easy-ish, so that at the end of the film, you're, it it just feels sad and tragic, but I don't think it's It's mean. It's a tragedy. Yeah, same. No, I mean, I I don't disagree. I just think it's, I mean, I can, I I think it's still sad, but it can still be mean at the same time. It's not the the happy ending that you would see in a lot of movies. Yeah, I, I mean, she has to mercy kill her spouse, um, right. which I mean, also, if we're looking at it from an AIDS allegory or or a can- any kind of disease allegory, it's also like oof, right? Yeah, I don't. I guess that's why I never really saw her as a damsel, and you know, the whole kind of thing. Not really the the sole theme, but you can't do life alone. Mm-hmm. You know. So she she needs people as much as, you know, Seth Brundle needed her. But she's had agency the entire movie from her interactions with Stathis, from her de- determining she wants an abortion. Like, everything about her journey, she's been afforded agency. And I feel like it was very effective. Both Stathis and her 
breaking down. Like, understandably, they're going Mm -hmm. through shock. And they do give the impression, as sluggishly moving as this, you know, Brundlefly puppet (laughs) is, that he's way stronger than her. And so between her emotional, she's she's going through it. Um, And he tosses her in willy-nilly, you know. So, like, it makes sense to me. And I do appreciate, I think I also liked that it was not some easy breakout of this pod. Like, he built that thing sturdy. So I, I I got over that, like you said, especially because she she got to be the one to ultimately put her lover out of his misery for for good. So yeah, I just it's an emotional movie, and I think Cronenberg also because it is like we've been saying all along, nothing really at all like the original fifties movie, but Cronenberg honed in on it being high concept, right? And so that's how this manifests as a remake is he took a high concept and he made it work with emotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm still to this day, it's like, you know what? Sometimes you don't have to be so beholden to the original. And this movie changes a lot from the original film. And it's it's the better for it, you know? Yes. This is why, as a total side tangent, this is why when people want, anytime you mention 2005's House of Wax and their first thought is, well, it's really more of a tourist trap (laughs) remake than, who cares? Is it a good movie? Here's the thing with that. I have heard that so many times. And I, I don't even disagree with it. But so many times when people say that, it's less so, for fun facts, it's more so to be like... It's for cred. Actually, you know what? It really, yeah, exactly. It, it's like film cred, bro. Like I'm just like, okay, I know. Yeah. Like you, you don't. It, I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's you've been saying it for 16 yeah. years, guys. It's okay. Like the original reviews when the movie came out already mentioned it. I'm good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I know, but I like it. So yeah. I don't really care, and that's that's what the, a good remake shouldn't matter like a good remake is a good remake and it doesn't really have any effect on the well, original and, that, and that's why like okay i mean i i don't want to get into a discussion about the black christmas 2019 film but when people were like well if they just would have called it anything but black christmas i'm like no no no, no. it's sorority girls in a house at christmas like sorry they can call it black christmas like i don't know what to tell you yeah i mean for marketing purposes yeah i can see how more people would have signed right. up mm-hmm. but that has more to do with the stigma of remakes than it does exactly i mean but that's the thing right like th- there is the same amount of difference between this movie and the original fly honestly than there is between black christmas and the original black oh, i'm sorry all of the black christmases right <laughs> all of them yeah all of them <laughs> and you know like the thing and you know the thing from yeah. other worlds totally different movies and the blob so right and yes <laughs> There is a blob. There is a blob, though. But the char- all the characters are changed. I think that kind of works better for me personally when you deviate enough that it's not a, t- a same rehash because then it's like, what's the well, point? And that's the other issue that people seem to have with remakes. Like, it's a no-win situation because if you're too close, then why are you bothering to remake it? And if it's too far, then it's, oh, well, you're not why paying... why are you bothering to remake it? <laughs> you're not paying homage to it anymore. Yeah. And it's like, ugh. Also, people need to learn how IP works. Like, the reason they're remaking it is because it's a valuable asset that they can make money off of. Like, sorry, it's still also a business. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And when you do it so far apart, there's generations Mm -hmm. who do not have a clue. I mean, when I first watched this, I don't, I was not aware at all of the 50s movie. You know, this was a movie that looked cool on the video shelves. No clue. And that's going to be the case 
with a lot of remakes that are based on properties 30 plus years Well, but that's the thing, though, right? So this movie is about 38 years removed from its predecessor. So what is 38 years ago from now? It's the 80s. Um, Yep. We're actually due for another round, right? Yeah. So so (laughs) we might be getting a lot of 80s remakes, (laughs) y'all. I feel like we're starting to see the 90s. It's the 90s oh, trend. We definitely are. We definitely are. But I, I think even more, it's more so in the sense of like, like the style of films we're getting, right? Like, because we went through that whole 80s nostalgia where it's like, oh, everything has to be synth and 80s slashery. And now we're, now we're in 90s nostalgia, which I, I am totally fine with. <laughs> but uh, yeah, all right. That is The Fly, everybody. Any, f- I mean, I, I think we've said everything, but by all means, <laughs> if y'all have any lasting words to say on the film. No, I think yeah, I think we're good. <laughs> okay. Well, um, before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Megan, first, thank you for stopping by again. We always love having you. Yay, thank you. Let everyone know where they can find you on social media. I am on Twitter, at HauntedMeg. Okay. <laughs> it's like, <That's laughs> I was it. waiting for more. As or I or just literally <laughs> anything on Bloody Disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I'm Bloody Disgusting. I mean, at BeDisgustingPod, because I do weekly podcast for bloody disgusting where we are if you don't want the analysis you just want to know what the weekly releases are and the news and recommendations deep cut recommendations between you and xena yeah we do do that i always describe it to people i'm like it's basically like if bloody disgusting like the site itself was in podcast form like that is exactly what it is like it's it's new yeah it's which (laughs) yeah right with the name of the podcast Yeah, I, I certainly hope that we live up to it. Here, Trace, it's almost like you crack the code. It's like the podcast in podcast form with a name. Hmm. It is always validating to know that we succeed. <laughs> it is what it sounds like. <laughs> well, um, that is the best pitch I've ever heard. <laughs> Just like the fly, the fly. It is what it sounds like. Indeed. It is. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us, you can read us on Twitter and Instagram at Queers. Join our Facebook group to hang out with other listeners and find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. And of course, if you are a listener of our bi-weekly Microqueers minisodes, please head over to YouTube and watch them because you can do that and it's fun <laughs> if you have a moment please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice and if you want even more content please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers so you know go subscribe and you'll be able to listen to our episodes on the boy behind the door old the night house and both don't breezes uh, <laughs> uh the breezes <laughs> <laughs> but joe yes Oh, shit, we've got a big one next week. Joe, what are we talking about? Oh, my God, the time has come because we are reaching the end of August. We are going to coincide with my most anticipated theatrical release film of the fucking year. I better get to see it. It better happen. So Candyman, the new film is coming out. So we're going to talk about the original Candyman. Okay, so <laughs> listeners, first of all, some of you, well, not all of you, because it was it was not a well-performing episode, but we covered Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh, last year. <laughs> yes, and Dr. John Paul was a fantastic guest. You owe it to him at least to go and listen to it. 
Yes, and it's also got a queer director in Bill Condon, so, you know, it's it's there. So listen to that, but yes, tune in next week for Candyman, and uh, until then, I think we can cross out The Fly. Yes. Can I can I just yeah. add yep. that The Fly is inspiration for Nia DaCosta's Candyman? She specifically <gasps> cited this as a reference. What? Oh my god! <laughs> the timing, the synergy! Yeah, she... she yeah, she told everyone involved to watch The Fly, specifically the romance aspect oh. of it. So, oh. Yeah, this this ties into the, the upcoming Candyman release. Hmm. Exciting. Yeah. Body horror, she mentioned specifically, and The Fly. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. Timely. Yeah, we'll cool. Keep that in mind for next week then, Joe. There we go. Okay. But, well, um, <laughs> until then, we can cross, cross out, out the fly. <laughs> 